0: this is the only sunday afternoon talk where i've never said uh, where i haven't had to say now please uh, be quiet <laughs> sit down you all kind of sat down and be quiet before i'm ready <laughs> it's the first time <laughs> and uh, today is the 10th day of October in the year 2010 10-10-10 so and I hear that's supposed to be auspicious isn't it? it is? so are there any questions? yes um, I don't have
1: a lot of introduction into Buddhism but I've just heard the word mindfulness um, isn't, does mindfulness, the way I understand it, does it lead into inaction, as if um, taking all our pro- problems and putting them under the mattress? And because in mindfulness, we just stay away from the problem, be aware of it, but we don't do anything to it. Is it not inaction?
0: And, well, I mean, it, it, what it allows us to do is, is respond in a, through wisdom rather than through just habit. Like it doesn't mean we just kind of resign ourselves to being passive. It's not like passive a kind of passivity, but it, it gives us perspective. So we're, so much of our lives is just a force of habit and reactivity. And what mindfulness allows us to do is observe these these habit patterns, and then, to, then we, from there, we begin to see what's worth doing, what's skillful and what is not. And it, it, because then we, we're developing a wisdom, so our active life then is much more uh, done through skillfulness, mindfulness, wisdom, rather than just through reactivity and um, habit patterns. So it, it's like you—you really—it what it, mindfulness does is it puts you in a relationship to the conflicts, uh, internal or external in a way that you're not you know you have you have like you see them in perspective you're not just caught into reacting to them or through either indulging or getting carried away or trying to reject or suppress anything it I gives you it help me to solve my yes it will <laughs> you know you that's where you can resolve <laughs> you know you can't you can't solve your own problems through the ego you you, see, you have to get outside the ego to see the real problem.
1: But it's just there, the problem is there. I know now, after being mindfulness, and uh, I'm staring at my problem, that, that that's uh, uh, some kind of betterment because I'm not panicking. The next thing is, but the problem is there, I mean, it's, it's, it's there, it's not there.
0: Well, the problem, I mean, this realm is a problem. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> it's not just you.
2: <laughs>
0: so you become more uh, kind of uh, accepting of this realm, and then when it's time to resolve problems, you know, personal problems or whatever, uh, this is where patience, wisdom—we we have its perspective in which we can't. We're not just trying to get rid of problems, but uh, sometimes uh, you know, we have to be patient with with ourselves, with the people we live with, with the society we're in. And then th- we, have this, we have this kind of spontaneity, ability to respond uh, intuitively to conditions, whether it's through not doing anything or through doing something. Sometimes, you know, many times it's better not to do anything. And other times it's, it's proper to do something. And that, that's intuitive, not uh, prescriptive. And this this is where you you know through mindfulness you're actually getting in touch with this intuitive intelligence uh, more, and you can trust that rather than just arbitrary judgments about how you feel or like or dislike something, or wanting just to get rid of problems, because as I said, this realm is a problem really. It's so it's uh, there's so many influences, so many conditions affecting each one of us, and we tend to see it from a very personal and a very limited way of looking. And mindfulness gives you perspective on that to where um, you have, you can solve problems, but it's not through getting rid of them or or seeing them through personal judgments, Through but through understanding.
1: <laughs> is this mindfulness a general sweep, sweeping finish for all the problems, or is it, is it case by case?
0: Well, it's... <laughs> you have to find out for yourself. <laughs> Anymore? Yes? If
1: I misunderstood you, please do correct me. Uh, stopping the thought process, one can stop the inner conflict and develop the peace in mind. Uh, to do that, you said no, we have to do the insight meditation, vipassana. And vipassana is the contemplation of the five aggregates. at the thought process. I and mean, we have to think about the body contemplation and mind contemplation.
0: Yeah, but you're, you know, you're beginning to, with the, the emphasis on mindfulness, which is non, not a, a thinking, but it's, uh, we use then the teaching like the four foundations of mindfulness, not to think about them or you know analyze them more, but to they're more like directing our attention, so you like the first foundation is like study sathuana, so you're you know it gives you a point of directing your attention to just the uh, physical body, but you don't think about the body you know you're not thinking about it in in terms of uh, of self view or you know value judgments of good, bad, but it's just observing being aware of what it's like to sit or stand walk or lie down or breathe, and just uh, the the sensation just being aware of your body as a sensitive form in you know th- which depends on conditions changing whether you're it's too hot or too cold or just right and but you're observing your your relationship to the body then is through observing it rather than just being caught in reacting to heat and cold or pleasure pain, and then with the Vedana, Jitta, Dhamma—you know the other three foundations. They—they're they, not to be grasped as teachings or doctrines, but they're more or less pointing at, uh, particularly uh, emphasizing maybe feeling or Vedana or emotional uh, Jitta, the, the quality of mind, or the or uh, using Dhamma. You see, like the dhammanupasana Manu is really where we take the like four noble truths and the. Buddhist teachings to these become more like ways of examining and seeing but it's not through through an analysis or logical reason so like th- these are the, the 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 uh you know the beauty of the buddhist teaching is it's not about just intellectual in, indulgence in in buddhist thought but it's actually taking those te- their their teachings pointing at and they're pointing you know like in like Lumbertach po pointing here, you're looking here, uh, you're not seeking uh, wisdom as some external thing or, uh, outwardly anymore, but you're beginning to to look at at, at the way that you're feeling, or you know physically feeling, or emotionally feeling, or uh, you know the doubting, or anger, or greed, or whatever conditions you're you're looking at. Desire, you have perspective on these that it, which is not. Say culturally attuned to uh, just judgment and values that we acquire through maybe cultural conditioning, but through wisdom, through discernment. So it's uh, that's what I think. Why many like my uh, attraction to Buddhism was because it 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 was it had this practical side to it. It wasn't just kind of you know superb intellectualizing and theorizing on on a high level of thought, but actually gave you very practical tools to use to deal with, with life, with with uh, being human, with feeling and, the, and all that condition with the aging process and pain <laughs> and sickness and loss. Like, you know, we have, uh, have to experience loss, you know, of parents or loved ones or separation. We all, you know, part grief and things like this, the strong emotions that we all have to experience in our lives if we live long enough. And uh, and this gives us a way of l- observing. It doesn't mean we don't grieve or don't experience things, but we, we're we looking at grief and, and loss in a different way than just on a personal, uh, emotional, uh, conditioned way. And so we learn. We're always learning from the experience of life, from sickness, from pain, from pleasure, from loss, from not getting what we want or not wanting what we have, things like that. <laughs> and it's kind of brilliant pointing, and, 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 it's, and, and that's why, the, like the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is the dukkha or suffering. and that, So there's nothing theoretical or esoteric or arcane or highly, it's not a highly evolved uh, kind of state it's a common state to all of us, isn't it? We, we all suffer. Uh, and, uh, and so it's uh, pointing to something so common, so ordinary to any human being on this planet. Uh, and then taking that and, and examining it in a way that we're no longer just reacting to suffering out of trying to get rid of it or, or just being uh, defeated by our own experience of pain or loss so we we have a way of of really using our life in a way that of wisdom rather than through just developing more increasing our habitual tendencies and fears and and obsessions that we 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 might have if and we which we on a on a conditioned level we have no perspective on it. we just judge it and you know, we make judgments about our emotions or see ourselves you know this is this is why this is a bad feeling or this is a good one or whatever so on the condition level we we tend to see it in terms of good and bad right or wrong from intuitive awareness then we we begin to see it it is a condition changing and it gives us that perspective that that is not judgmental but but really we're not saying it isn't it's something else it is what it is and then we begin to to investigate, to let go of of the just blind, heedless attachments to the conditioned phenomena, which doesn't deny or reject, but it puts them in perspective where we can actually discern the presence and the absence of them. Like in uh, the Buddhist teaching, you you observe the suffering and non-suffering. So you know, in my own experience, like like um, you know. Some when I don't get what I want, or things aren't going the way I want them to, or the difficult scenes, or yeah, just physical pain—you know—I I can actually, you know, see the the desire to wanting to get rid of the pain, or the disease, or inconvenience, or not wanting things to be the way they are, wanting something I don't have, and then then I so I create this suffering around that. Then I let go of that suffering through mindfulness. You let go of it and then you see it and then it, it ceases. You know, it'll, you're aware of it and it's, it's presence and then if you're patient it'll cease and you're discerning the absence of suffering. is like this. So then this absence of suffering we don't notice. We don't usually, you know, we tend to go from one thing to another. So we're suffering so we... We do something, you know, have a drink, or look at the internet, or television. <laughs> you know, so we distract ourselves when we suffer, so we never get a perspective on on how conditioned phenomena operate. Yes. Yeah,
2: you talked about not laying emphasis on <coughs> development of certain aspects of your personality. But in the fourth noble truth, it says. The scriptures
0: are right speech, right action right mindedness. How does this fit in with right Well they, like in the you know, like the like in, in the Buddhist uh, terminologies you have you have this sequence of Dana Sila Bhavana, which means like generosity and morality and then meditation or cultivation of the path. Like Bhavana is, is, uh, you know, really like meditation, or Vipassana meditation, cultivating the path of awareness. And then the, the, then the, the, you know, like in Thailand, for example, the attitude of dana or generosity. So, uh, I was uh, at, uh, Tanajan Mahalao's monastery, up in, uh, the Midlands yesterday evening, and uh, talking about this about how because uh, many of the people his, his monastery is way out in the middle of nowhere, in the countryside, <laughs> and uh, all these Thai monks in this this house, <laughs> in the middle of the of uh, real English countryside, and uh, then a lot of people there were, you know. Where, where it didn't un, you know found it difficult to understand some of these concepts and so explaining how how the, uh, the like this sense of generosity is, is, a, is an encouragement to just not be so selfish like the, well, it starts out on a, a level of of just sharing something you have with somebody else you know so there's always this encouragement towards skillfulness towards good action generous action and then, uh, and that's before even the morality level comes into it. So, um, and this is a kind of, the very kind of, so integrated into the Thai cultural conditioning that, you know, their their immediate response is always to share things. They, you know, Thailand is noted for its hospitality. <laughs> because its, ba- it's cultural, uh, c- you know, its basic cultural attitude is based on generosity. And then... Uh, and then the Thila is, is uh, where we have decided to take responsibility for action and speech. So like the five precepts or eight precepts or whatever. But the five precepts is a basis. So just to, that means we, we now, like you have to ask, I can't just tell you to take the five precepts. It's a forbidden by, you know, Buddhist monk, we can't go around that so you've got to take the five precepts. <laughs> You've got to ask me to take the five. <laughs> so this puts me—you know—it means that you're taking on the five precepts, me not forcing you to keep them. Now this is—you uh, know—seeing that this is something coming from you, a kind of advancement, a sense of your own personal integrity, of taking responsibility for what you do, how you live, and and your use of speech. So that we're using—you know—the physical body we have for. Uh, that which is skillful and good, and and uh, rather than for using it to harm or or steal or deceive or anyone or anything, and so then the the five precepts is a kind of uh, you know a good standard of moral boundaries that that uh, you know is very helpful and it creates this sense of self-respect. Like if we. This Donna and Sila, what it does on the ego level creates a, a sense of self worth and, and uh, self respect because you 're actually you know moving in a direction that you can you can feel respect for you know you're, you're living your life in a way that you respect and that other people respect, so then you you have this sense of your own self worth as a, just a personality as an individual person in this society and then bhavana from there which means that you you have to you feel this inclination to even being a good person has its problems so (laughs) and so you begin to have this urge to meditate to to get develop wisdom so like skillful action is is a, a quintessential it's like a sine qua non condition for for living to to act on what is good, you know, good intentions, good actions and to refrain from acting on uh, things that are harmful, deceitful cause division and problems to yourself and others so it's, it's a, like skillfulness in action and speech, like in the like, in, when the, like you have, usually you talk about dana sila pavana or sila samadhi panya. So, sila samadhi panya is morality, concentration, and wisdom. But as you explore the noble truth, then the fourth noble truth takes you to, you start from wisdom, because there's what they call samadhiti or right understanding. And it's from insight rather than from just grasping some idea of right understanding. <coughs> You know, right understanding is a intuitively. You know, it's a it's through insight, not through intimidation or through your own, dis, you know, deceiving yourself. And then the rest takes takes from that that discernment and right understanding toward uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then the and then the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So it's called the eightfold path. And then that that is like it, it works it 's eightfold it 's not eight steps it 's it kind of works together you know it's uh, if there's right understanding, then the rest follow from that you know how we live our lives, what we do physically and and uh, how how what we say and speak and so forth is coming from right understanding rather than from me trying to be a good person uh, on the level of just Thila, then Trying to be a good person is skillful. You know, it's a direction to encourage people to do uh, just for worldly happiness or a sense of self-respect. In You know, you, you're you living in a way that, that you can respect yourself. And this is very important because so many of the problems that I've seen uh, here is people, you know don't have that self-respect. They tend to see themselves too much from a critical mind. You know, they see uh, something wrong or they, they shouldn't think like this or shouldn't feel like that. Or So even very good people who are worthy of respect can feel a lack of self-respect because they, they just operate too much. They're too bound into their critical minds and, and making too many exaggerating the the defects or the flaws or the uh, the other things that that one experiences in one's mind and so uh it's like you know you're you're but when you take responsibility for action and speech uh you're not always maybe going to because still a lack, because there isn't wisdom operating yet, yet you're de- developing a, a skillfulness and a kind of confidence in yourself as a person which leads into bhavana or meditation and understanding um, we are told to
2: be um, staying in the present and not to be attached to the past and And the future. So, um, how does that kind of um, work when you're a lay person and you still need to make future plans and have ambition? How do those two
0: things come together? Well, well, like the emphasis on mindfulness here and now is just pointing to experience now. You think so? I mean, you know everything experience is always now, you know the future is the unknown, and the past is is what you remember and I think it's very important to 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 recognize this that now is where you experience life, whatever you know whether you're alone in your room or studying for an exam or or planning for the future or you're or you're regretting things of the past or whatever when you remind yourself of here and now suddenly you're, you're you're centering yourself in a way you're grounding yourself and then then of course whatever you you have to do you're you know as a as a student or as a professional person or whatever you you know you then you you have a way of you know you have a center a kind of grounded center to operate from then you can do what you can in terms of the practicalities of planning for the future or whatever. Like for me, you know, as a Buddhist monk, the head monk here at the monastery, then I, you know, you should see my calendar, all the... (laughs) (laughs) From now I'll be leaving uh, for Thailand on the 23rd of November, every day is, filled in with things so I plan for the future but I know what I'm doing it's not just you know always looking to the future for something it's uh, you know because the like the ignorant mind tends to we're always thinking of success in the future or getting something Uh, so we we tend to ignore the present and so a lot of our tendencies to uh, compulsive activities is just Planning for the future, or just distracting ourselves because of restlessness or anxiety, and 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 we don't really have any perspective or understanding of of what we're doing. But with this, then this this recognition of the present and of this sense of letting go, it means that then we we begin to have a sense of being grounded and and a center point, rather than just caught in the momentum of obsessive. Plans or ambitions and and uh, anxieties that we have about the future. It gives you uh, a way of doing what you have to do, you know. In, a, in, in perspective, you're no longer just uh, coming from ignorance and personal ambition, but but your, your sense of of um, achieving in the world is then in perspective. It's no longer just a, a blind force kind of. Enslaving you to to compulsive behavior, and so then you know if you have ambitions in any in a professional way or whatever, then it's in a perspective that that, give, that isn't just you know the problem with with worldly life is sometimes we're just caught in ambitious goals and and we're just uh, obsessed with them. And we lose all perspective on everything else. This gives you a balanced sense of being able to deal with the ordinary, business, ordinary life, and and your goal or achievements, and that it's not doesn't make you incapable of doing those things, but it gives you a clearer, more sense of confidence and ability to respond to situations in a way you can't do if you're just caught in obsessive compulsive. Uh, motivations and then there's a lot of fear anxiety and everything just uh, and if you burn out people think can easily burn out from, from being caught into that without any perspective on it yes the group that I'm in recently we lost
2: our teacher Um, And so we feel a bit kind of abandoned, and we have to go through a period when we won't have a formal teacher, and then it's a period of getting a new teacher. And I wondered, seeing as you've experienced this with Ajahn Chah, and other people will be experiencing it with you, if you could make some observations about going through this kind of change...
0: <laughs> well, it's you know because this is um, you know in the scripture when the Buddha was passing on, uh, his uh, disciple Ananda, uh, you know, said, "What are we going to do without our teacher? When you go, who do we have? Who should we look to?" And then the Buddha said, well, "I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya as a so it's like this is this is quite important that." The Buddha wasn't pointing to himself as, I'm your teacher. But he, he gave us uh, conventional forms like the, the Dhamma as a, uh, in scriptural or in through. In that day, they didn't have any written scriptures, but they, they memorized things. So the, the Dhamma teachings of the Buddha and, uh, and the Vinaya form of, con, of uh, a conventional form for restraint that helps develop mindfulness. So so then, uh, this, this is, so when Lung Po Cha uh, died, you know, I felt, uh, what I felt was, uh, you know, I felt this grief, you know, loss, a teacher, but but I uh, also felt that now the practice of Dhamma Vinaya was up to me. And, you know, the only way to, to kind of really, you know, I thought the one way I can really show my gratitude to Ajahn Shah is to actually put it into practice. <laughs> and even if he's not, doesn't need him anymore, just do it, because I certainly had the, the clear teaching from him. And uh, and so it gave me a kind of impetus, actually, his death, the sense of, I now I have to develop this, I can't depend on you know, Lung Po Chow being around. And, uh, and so it, you know, I found it kind of a, a sense of, I think it's like, you know, when you're, you know, as long as your parents are alive, you're always their child. And when your parents die, then you suddenly realize you have to live your life. <laughs> and you're in that, that category now, you know, not being anybody's child being an orphan or something and then you and in a way one can be depressed or saddened or grief-stricken about it but also it gives you a sense of of you know it's up to me now I can't depend on mom and dad or or the you know all these elders or people I depend on uh, that suddenly I have to really take it on myself I found that very uh helpful to, to reflect in that way and then uh and then different teachers of different you know you get used to a teacher you get very fond of a teacher and and that needs to be examined too how how attached we get to teachers and um and and that uh, you know it's, and then when the teacher is gone then we feel a sense of loss but that's also part of the the practice then when a new teacher comes uh you know a relationship you know one can be compare the new teacher with the old teacher (laughs) but uh you know you know sometimes there is you know the the first teacher is a better one but that isn't really important (laughs) the teacher's giving (laughs) Sometimes the second one is better than the first. So I mean, this is this is, you can't control. You know, it just happens. But you know, that, that see everything is your teacher because it's not just a one-way relationship. You know, like like I'm your teacher and then you're my student. You know, I learn from you too. You know, it's a it's a it's a interrelated thing, and I have maybe the conventional position of teacher and you as student but that's merely convention because we all learn you know i learn from living in this community from these people these monks these nuns it's not just me teaching them and they're you know they're uh, perennial students of mine and i'm always teaching them i'm also learning from them and so then we begin to see things in this way where we 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 don't really and we gain more confidence in like in, if your teacher, you know, the one that's leaving is, you know, giving you the, the the good teaching, then trust in that and and develop it but and then it's up to you to really take it on rather than depend too much on, on a living physical teacher. And then the loss the, separ- the feeling of grief or loss se- through separation is like this you know, you're going to feel a sense of loss or grief about losing a teacher but that's also part of our human condition is that separation from the loved is suffering and separation from what we're accustomed to uh, or you know our, and we begin to Understand our own the way we attach to somebody as a teacher. Nothing wrong with it, but the, the because like I was very attached to Ajahn Chah, but he never tried to. He was never pointing to himself as, as uh, "I'm your teacher" and, and 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 that I have to that I have to depend on him as a person. Ajahn Chah's gift was to always encouraged me to look at what I, and my attachment to him. You know, the way I tended to see him always in terms of, you're the wise Ajahn, you're the wise teacher, and I'm just the ignorant Farhan, ignorant Thoranu. <laughs> I was quite willing to do that. And you know, I like being dependent on somebody like Ajahn Shah and have him tell me what to do, but he'd never go along with that game. <laughs> and, uh, he makes me force me to look at what I'm actually doing.
2: Yes. Um, what is our duty towards our parents, and how can we fulfil it if we have a difficult relationship with them or uh, fears and? Uh,
0: Well, like that relationship is very powerful for all of us, parents and so forth. So we've, you know, this is where we, you know, it's really very important to see, to observe, to be mindful of that, you know, of of resentments or anger, repressed anger we might feel towards... uh, the way our parent the way we perceive our parents, or the way they treated us, uh, and so it's uh, you know to just say you should, you know, the the advice is to respect parents, you know, and that's because we actually, you know, they gave us birth. You know, like mother, without my mother, I wouldn't be here, <laughs> and, and so it's uh, this sense of respect, but also. So that that on the level of, of respect is part of it, but also we always carry other feelings uh about the experience of you know because our parents you know we're not none of us were born through uh perfectly enlightened mothers and fathers, <laughs> so they were <laughs> you know like like my parents, I realized were not our aunts. And uh, and then as I grew older, and I used to be quite critical of them when I was in, you know, teenage. And then uh, as I grew older, I began to see how difficult life is. Uh, I began to appreciate my parents because they did, uh, you know, they provided a stable home and, and they were good people, basically. They were, they did, you know, they... I could I could think of things I resented about them, but now at seventy six, I can only think of my parents with love and gratitude. <laughs> and I think age helps. <laughs> <laughs> when you're eighteen, you you know it all anyway. You know, no better than what your mother and father how, the mistakes they've made. And, and uh, at 76 I don't know anything really (laughs) I'm just uh, you know I was fortunate enough to have uh, these good parents and you know know, they did provide took care of me and gave me a good sense of uh, stability and and, uh, in just uh, on a conventional family level that um is when I was eighteen, I certainly could see all kinds of things i didn't like about them and and but that's part of the i think the growing up process where we we learn uh you know how to you know we we always need to you know find our own self we can't just we have to sometimes break away from our parents. In order to find ourselves, so there's always this sense of of parental attachments uh, both ways parents attached to their children and children trying to uh, assert their independence and This is about being human and uh but in terms of like like the thing that really helped me in the early years of monasticism one thing like living in Thailand, where there is a lot of respect for parents is part of a cultural attitude. Where my, my American background, in my generation, we were always criticizing, you know. When I started going to university, you take psychology 101, and you learn all the things wrong with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives you psychological terms, you know you become an authority kind of on what mistakes your parents made and why you're you're suffering from lack of confidence or anxiety because your mother, usually, (laughs) (laughs) so and and then you you go try to explain it to your mother and she's (laughs) broken-hearted so anyway this is just the human condition but uh, important but each one of us have different experiences you know with parents or lack of parents or whatever so and and that's just the way it is you know and and this is why i encourage you to trust yourself to just be the observer of your, of say your own maybe resentments or anger and not see it just be the observer of it. not saying that you shouldn't have it or or, or just say that it's because of your parents, but just it is what it is. So, one time here many years ago, one of the monks was giving a metta retreat, loving kindness retreat. And so, loving kindness, you're saying, is when may all the beings in the world be free from suffering and happy and to love all sentient beings. That's the grand macrocosmic view and you get down in uh, down from the macrocosmic to the micro and uh, into particulars so this was a time of Mrs. Thatcher <laughs> and she was prime minister and metaphor for Mrs. Thatcher was quite difficult <laughs> <laughs> where all sentient beings was magnanimous I could do <laughs> people could do that and then the. And then this one woman was, uh, you know, came to me during the middle of this retreat in despair because every time the monk started talking about parents, now spread loving kindness to your mother, this woman would just feel anger. You know, so she'd, she would, uh, she said, I can't do this. You know, I'm just a horrible person. You know, every day I have to spend loving kindness to my mother and all the, that comes up is anger and resentment and so uh i uh, so i uh, you know i recognized the problem that she was was trying you know she couldn't pretend on on a kind of personal love or sense of love that for her mother that she didn't feel and then she felt very guilty about that she she said i must be a very bad person i can't do everybody else seems to be doing it but me and so then the, then i pointed to the fact that what you know that this this uh anger or resentment she had to have metta for that to you know so metta then isn't it's not approving of it but it's a willingness to to bear with one's anger and not judge it as some you know in a personal way as i shouldn't or or blame it on your mother or or take uh, feel guilty about it but so this metta practice then is going into even a more particular sense of your own anger or resentment, which means you're then this metta is like just accepting it. It is like this, this anger. When the perception of mother comes in, uh, is, then this is the the emotion that I'm experiencing is like this, and that that's a that's what metta really means. It's not about Feeling you know, of emotional love and and liking, but it's uh, loving kindness on this level is more like unconditioned. It's just willing to let something be what it is, and it's, it's and especially when we have these kind of feelings. It's it's a way of of accepting sometimes our own feelings, which is not justifying or rejecting them. And and I found this, uh, you know, I couldn't do metta practice very well till I started having more metta for my own feelings like for a billion Chinese in China I found no difficulty because I didn't know one of them <laughs> but for some of the monks and nuns I found it very difficult <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> because it gets down from the you know a vast number of people that you don't know. And then it gets more into the known, like mother, father, or this monk, or that monk. And then it, it you're dealing with, with where your emotions are threatened, you know. Like a billion Chinese are no threat to me at this moment. It's just a massive amount of Chinese over there. <laughs> <laughs> now, if all a billion Chinese started invading the Dhamma Hall, I might feel something else. (laughs) But as long as they're over in China, then no problem. (laughs) But then just one good monk who I find, you know, uh, that I don't like very much, even though he's a very good monk, that metta. So then being aware of this aversion to this monk, have metta for that, doesn't mean I I am approving of my feeling, but it's a way of, of accepting what I'm feeling uh, and and not making a problem about it. So then I found that a lot of my resentments or or personal tendencies towards liking and disliking starting to to you know I've found much more sense of embracing life and freedom rather than just trying to I like this monk but, and this nun but this one I don't like and get into personal emotional reactions to my personal preferences and also found that they. This way it expands you, you know, is that my when I before I became my 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 the people that I could accept was very narrow, you know, as two critical persons so they had to be like this. And I, and if you weren't like that then I'd have nothing to do with you. And then living in the Sangha, you know, you keep expanding those boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, uh, that's the good part, you know. It's like learning, like we all, all of us, the parents included, ha- are working out our karma in some way or another. And it's not always that we like the way they're doing it or approve. It's not about liking or approving, but it's more, we begin to have more compassion for each other, a sense of understanding the human predicament. And that that we can't be, you know... A personality that everybody likes and loves or approves of, but and and that you're living with, uh, like in in the, in the monastery here, you're living with with people that you know have very different. They're like for me, of my generation, I find some the younger generation mystified. <laughs> you know, I don't know where they're coming from half the time because <laughs> I'm from a totally different generation. And, uh, you know, so I don't know that, uh, you know, I, my emotional tendencies all developed during the, you know, the, in the 30s and 40s. And so, you know, so it's a very different attitude than uh, the war, the Second World War and so forth was, you know, develop, was part of my uh, conditioning. And then you realize now Most of the monks, and and I think probably all or most of the monks and nuns, for them, the Second World War is ancient history. Like the First World War was to me. I was born in 1934. And so, you know, I didn't, um, so the First World War ended in 1918, didn't it? And uh, so that seemed ancient history to me. But yet, I recognize now how much the First World War affected me, you know, because of the I was educated in, and, and, and in a in a system that was, that was the result of having, having, uh, having fought the First World War, which to me, in terms of memory, was just like Civil War or Roman War with the Greeks or the Battle of Troy and what. <laughs> And then now I realize Second World War, which is very vivid for me, yeah, American. I didn't suffer like they did here in Britain, but it's still very powerful. And attitudes of patriotism and American values were form- very strong, formative impressions at that age. You know, so so I was uh, eleven or twelve when the war ended in nineteen forty-five. So that was, uh, you know, the. That that's a very and I have this fascination now, with Second World War, like the Battle of Britain and all these you know, people. Are, you know, they had this last last uh, month. They had kind of uh, seventy years ago. The Battle of Britain took place here, and we're sitting here. And I wonder what it, we wouldn't be sitting here so calmly with uh, enemy aircraft flying over. <laughs> and uh, And things like this are... Because it it, it did leave strong impressions that, say, younger generations didn't have. And then the Vietnam War is too old for that. And then now that's ancient history. So, you know, these these things do affect our uh, the fashions, the tendencies, the attitudes of the time, how we see, how we perceive ourselves and the world around us. So my perceptions... Level, you know, conditioned perceptions are very much formed during those the 30s and 40s, and now the younger monks <laughs> come. <laughs> their their perceptions are formed from from different, totally different things that don't mean anything to me very much, like uh, this lot of the pop music I don't understand it in the least <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking of my parents as being old fashioned <laughs> yes uh, I you,
2: uh, Buddhist monks often create conflict for themselves so they can watch what happens so a community, like sitting over in going over. Going
1: somewhere scary to meditate. and I was wondering if that was
0: useful for lame people to things like that. Well, I think we all have to test ourselves out in some degree. Like in the early years as a monk, I, I did a lot of, you know, a, a kind of ascetic practices just to find out what would happen. And uh, because, in, you know, you brought, I was brought up in a kind of middle class atmosphere. Uh, that you, uh, you know, you didn't you know, you didn't uh, go without three meals a day and it's so much just taken for granted. So in uh, like in Buddhist monasticism, like we're from what they call a dutanga tradition, where they have this, is, or like ascetic practices that the Buddha allowed. He didn't really favor asceticism. It's a kind of self-torture or Mutilation or anything like that, but he did allow certain ascetic practices not as you know not to get attached to them but to to see the your own attachments to maybe three meals a day or 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 like in you know in the monastery we had only one meal a day. I got used to that, and then I thought, what would it be like not to have to have a meal every other day. So I did it for a while, practices eating every other day. You know, just to see what what would happen. Or I went on a fast where nothing, only, only water, for a week. So I made these determinations. And uh, it's horrible because, <laughs> you know, and you don't have any salt or anything. The water just goes right through you, and you just you get a, you feel really. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't know how to fast so, so I found that wasn't really the right way to do it and then, then I did the salt water fast where I'd allow, take a bit of salt, that help, helps maintain the water the liquid element in the body otherwise you just get very dehydrated and, and that's very painful, very unpleasant but uh, I've been on a fast uh, I'm just coming off one I still like to do it because it's kind of like they call now we call it detox
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds it does work you know you do feel a, a sense of uh, well being if you fast in the right way but it's like through kind of pushing your boundaries but then Ajahn Chah you know, would always he'd let me do these things, but then he'd, you know, if I became kind of obsessed with my aesthetic practices, he'd he'd keep pointing to the middle way, like you know, you know, so that I I began to to not just see being a good monk was being as hard on myself and denying myself everything, just as think, trying to you know that's quite can be quite conceited because when you're really uh, uh, aesthetic, you can feel your a sense of superiority. You know, I'm, those monks—the way they eat food—and and <laughs> you know, I—I <laughs> you know, I don't. You know, I'm not greedy. I, you, you can you can make it into a kind of conceit also, and uh, that's where, you know, the mindfulness is really the way to deal with it—to see. You know, your own tendency towards uh, feeling you should test or do something special. And uh, then, especially when you're young, you tend to want to find out what will happen. I was brought up in the, you know, my mother thought if I didn't have three square meals a day, I'd faint and die. <laughs> so I had this kind of obsession around, I had to have three meals a day, And then I become a monk with Anjan Chonyo. I was in one meal a day. My mother was quite upset with that. (laughs) And then one time we had a famine. So I I didn't get hardly anything. And I got malnutrition. So I wrote my mother, I said, I'm now just trying to live on leaves off of trees. And and she was very upset with that. (laughs) but I found out, you know, I can survive, even in famine. You know, I can, you know, what well, fortunately it didn't last long enough to, to where there's any great damage, but, but it's, it's uh, you know, you've, we tend, to, especially from affluent societies like this one, we, we tend to see things in a, we're quite spoiled in a way, we take, and we take a lot for granted. And so, some of us need to test ourselves in regards to the assumptions and that we have from our own cultural background.
1: It's almost two thousand six hundred years since Lord Buddha was born, and there are very few realized persons. Very few is it anahats that you call them. Um, the results tell me that, uh, isn't, isn't there any other easier way to unwind <laughs> it? <laughs> because billions of people, billions of lives have been born and dead, and, and uh, yet there are only a handful, or probably less
0: than How do you know? How do you... <laughs>
1: because,
0: uh, <laughs> you just think there's only a few. <laughs> I think if the world, if there were no arhats in the world, it would be a lot worse than it is. Well, I mean, maybe known ones. Yeah. But, you know, you know, there's a lot probably are totally unknown, you know, not, have no, you know, aren't on Facebook or anything. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to uh, point to a shortcut. <laughs> no, I mean it does seem seem uh, you know because I understand what you're saying because I you know when I when I went to Thailand and uh, you know you. Your cultural background is, is very—you uh, you think you, you know, you're you're looking from in a particular cultural way at at the Thailand from American kind of cultural attitudes and and so I you know and I could see many things you know about the monks and that I didn't like or approve of and and, uh, and so you know I've used to think well, I wonder how many are really enlightened or not. And then I began to see that this conceit, you know, my thinking that I'm able to judge who's enlightened and who isn't. I think, who am I to know whether so-and-so is enlightened or not? And and so then they, uh, and so I asked Sajjan Chah one time whether he was enlightened, and he made me look at my own desire to know about him. (laughs) You know, so, and I found that more helpful, and he says, yes, I am an enlightened (laughs) arahant. I think I probably would have doubted it (laughs) but uh, because he did, you know, he did, you know, know, he says how, and when at one time, you know, because I saw him as the wise person and me as the student, then I, one time, and I've been practicing for quite a few years, so I asked him, you know, what do you think of my practice, Ajahn Chah, do you think I've attained uh, stream entry? And, um, cause, you know, I thought he would know. And he said, how should I know? <laughs> you sh- you've got to know yourself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this was his genius, was throwing you back and seeing what, you, what you're actually doing. And then, you know, like, uh, like, you know, there's legends about Arahants and the Himalayas and these wise sages and hermits and and then the Himalayas are a symbol of, you know, where all these, these holy men live. And, and I used to, you know, out of conceit in my cultural background, think, that's probably just rubbish. There aren't any arahants in the Himalayas. Name one. <laughs> and then, uh, and now I would think there probably are. And then I think if there weren't any, I think the world would be worse than it is. Because there is, a, you know, wisdom is, is a, it's our you know it's it's it isn't something so difficult or so so kind of high and remote that that only you know when you see yourself in terms of the ego you tend to see the buddhist path as too difficult and too high or the as as somebody so so advanced that that you can't possibly hope to ever be like that and that's how the thinking mind the ego works where, uh, where the mindfulness you begin to see that that it's not about being high or or refined or subtle or anything like that or, but it's learning to understand this right understanding which is is not about a high specially achieved state but it's it's our willingness to open to life and the, and investigate and see for ourselves. So, it's, and this is a remarkable thing about the Buddha's teaching because it is uh two thousand five hundred and fifty three year old teaching, and uh, and still it it is, you know, it works. It's not a. It's not just something about old Indian philosophy or, you know, ancient. Uh, interest in anthropology or uh, old Indian ways of thinking, and, and that it's not coming from that. It's, a, it's a very appropriate to the present time. That's why there's so many interested in a country like this that were never interested before, with the, you know, because it was, was not a part of our cultural attunement. But now, of course, with communication, there's so much interest in Buddhism all over the world uh, that didn't exist 50 years ago. And why? Why this particular religion? And and because it does give us very skillful tools that are not about, not just a kind of appreciation of ancient India, but it's about being human. And this, no matter how well educated we are, we, we don't understand our own humanity. You know, we don't understand who we are and the limitation and what it is to be a, a human being on this planet and and we we have our own cultural attitudes, cultural conditioning, social attitudes, but this is is breaking through that whole illusion of conditioning to to uh, universal wisdom that that we become attuned to through mindfulness so don 't despair i 'm sure that
1: also a famous question, um, they say, uh, this status cannot be given... Right. ...mine it yourself. Yeah. But... Um, is somehow magically can, he can come, somehow kill our desires, and I go, I go to an and somehow request him to kill my desires.
0: They can't, they can't, they can just encourage you to look at your desires because it's it's like you know like even the buddha you know the founder the lord buddha couldn't enlighten his disciples but he he's always pointing you know so his teachings are like pointers and it's always pointing here you know not to the personality to the person but to the to the mind and in the 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 way things are to see it so so that's why the pointers are the same, whether it's ancient India or modern Britain. It's the the human condition hasn't changed. You know, the, the human ignorance and fear and desire are still much, you know, the, exactly the same as they no doubt were in 2,500 years ago. Uh, and so that's why it does, you know, have great significance in modern life because it's not about... It's not about ancient religious philosophies or that, it's about suffering its causes and, the, and the, how to let go of the causes of suffering and to see, uh, tune into ultimate reality, to begin to recognize it and, and uh, to uh, cultivate this perspective of awareness into, and integrate it into the daily life that we live. But I hear it
1: takes thousands of years
0: don't believe it. <laughs> no, no, that kind of thinking will not help you. <laughs> yes.
2: What's the purpose of practice Buddhism?
0: The purpose of the practice of Buddhism? Well, it is to. Uh, you know, put it in simple terms to awaken the individual like like we you know, we think we're awake because our eyes are open <laughs> but we're you know, we're very conditioned through, you know, once you're born you know you're, a baby's born then it, it's conditioned by the mother and the father and the brothers, sisters and the family and the society and so we acquire all the values and conditions of our particular ethnic identity or family or social identities. Uh, And so the aim of the Buddha is to awaken to Dhamma, to reality itself. So we're not operating through this conditioning anymore, just blindly through uh, the conditioning we've received. Uh, we're, We're not rejecting it either, but we're finding our relationship to the conditions uh, rather than just being caught into the habitual uh, attachment and operating always from the conditioned plane. So the word Buddha itself, you know, it's a significant word, means awakened. Um, uh, It's about a human being awakening to Dhamma, to reality. So, in the Thai Forest tradition, like we, uh, we, if most of the Thai Forest teachers, the Ajahn's teach this Bhutto practice, where you it's a kind of mantra. Bhutto is a kind of mantric form of Buddha, and that is like it, it, it. For me, I've used that just to, to, to for one thing because I am such a, a clever thinker. Uh, I just started thinking Bhutto rather than proliferating in my mind. So And then Bhutto also means like awakened. And then, uh, so then I think, well, I'm awake. But then I, I'm caught into my own conditioning. You know, I'm just, you know, thinking I'm awake, my eyes are open, so I'm awake. But that's not really awake because I'm operating from my, uh, my ego or my fears and desires and then with Bhutto reminds you to let go of that those fears and desires to observe them and so then Buddha actually means awakened consciousness of a human individual so with, like when we you know in the traditional ceremony we, we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and that is you know refuge is in awareness it's not personal anymore not like in in what I think or what I believe in or what somebody else thinks or believes in—it's in this, like Bhutto. Now when I say Bhutan's it reminds me this is awareness taking refuge in aware, in awakened attention. Before I start creating myself as a person or or getting caught up in my own cultural conceits or or emotional habits and then then your second refuge in Dhamma, Tammang turnangachami then you you have this sense of awakening to reality, and what people call the real world is not is not rea- the real world uh you know it's the rea- it's not reality the real world for most people is an illusion the so in this sense of awakening to reality is like you're Awakening to Dhamma, to ultimate reality, and then Sangha, Sanghakarnanga Chami is more like, uh, it's like Sangha means those who practice, those who are actually practicing in this right way. So that that is like a refuge in, in in the sense of as a human being existing on this planet, this time, you refuge in in the practice of. Of meditation uh, and awakening to Dhamma, to reality itself. So I like to now for me the uh, translating Dhamma is like reality. It's, it's reality rather than just some kind of like some kind of Buddhist terminology uh, as if you know because when you you know use an exotic word like Dhamma it can mean you know you, you start conceiving it as something it may not be at all. Where for me, the word reality isn't about what I think is real or the real world. It's, it's through this awareness that I begin to recognize and know reality. As, and that's what Dhamma really is when are Nangachami. So then, this, this relationship of Buddha Dhamma Sangha is like, it's a, it's, I found this a perfect reminder in my life, which is non-personal. It's not me, Ajahn Samhita, anymore, awakened. It's not like I'm awakened as a person, uh, you know, or that I I know the reality, the real world as a person. Suddenly the personality falls away. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and it would be very arrogant of me to claim it personally. But it's, it's through this refuge in Dhamma Sangha, that this is possible to see through the, the conceit of self and to um, awaken to reality and not through, because you, you can't do through the ego or through cultural biases or even identities with Buddhism, but through the practice and the cultivation of mindfulness. Yes?
2: If you're aware everybody
0: suffers sometimes and how you feel is that, including yourself? Well, what you can do is you've got to resolve it in your mind, your own suffering. Like you hear, you know, the news of the day is sometimes horrendous. And... uh, you know, the things that go on, you know, just heard this morning on the news about Americans' missiles bombed a village in Wajiristan or someplace like that and killed a whole village full of people or something, you know. and uh, Now that is, you know, I've never suffered in that way, you know. My life has been fortunate enough not to have to to be involved in that kind of thing, but you hear about it all the time. Just the, 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 you know, the sorry about that. You know, we we just missed the. We were aiming at somebody else, <laughs> and you just happened to be in the wrong place. Sorry, <laughs> and so it it, it becomes uh, your collateral damage. It's way of of looking at the suffering around us in, in ways that we don't have to feel it. But as, as, you, as you more and more understand suffering, there's not much one can do about such things, you know, in, in uh, terms of being able to stop them, the Americans from doing such things. But we can at least resolve the problem in ourselves. That we can do. And then from there, if we have ability and influence, we can maybe have, you know, encourage, encourage that, uh, towards, you know, towards skillful actions and and respect for life and things. But until we really have resolved that in ourselves, then we, we don't fully understand the suffering in the world around us. And so I've been, you know, how, how people can be so so violent to each other. And I've been reading this book on the war in uh in uh yugoslavia you know in the 90s it's just heart-rending you know the way what happened the the bloody kind of destruction and mass murder of people you know by the thousands and uh and you think how could they do that you know how can how could you how can you be so brutal to another human? And I've never been in a in a in a in a state where that has been even an option, you know. With just n- not part of my experience in life. But this was happening in the nineties here at sitting in Amrabati and the, this uh, kind of ethnic cleansing was going on in Yugoslavia. And um, and so I. And it, and it really, you know, the descriptions were were horrendous. What people were doing to each other? Like, how can they do that? But yet the conditions, you know, I don't understand. I'm not don't live there, and I don't know. So many so many of these ethnic uh, conditions are you know unresolved, like the the Jewish question, for example. That's never been resolved in any definite way. You know, anti-Semitism. And so there's, you know, you kind of suppress it or deny it, but also, you know, the actual causes of such such a, a condition have never been uh, fully recognized by either side, by anti-Semites or by Semites. So there might be a few that do, but it's rare. And so when when conditions arise then we tend to to react to ethnic biases or conditions uh, you know prejudices that we've acquired through our own ethnic identities or what happened you know uh, to our to our group uh, our special ethnic group uh, 300 years ago and we can and you can actually promote anger And and brutality. My reflecting that three hundred years ago, your your uh, family murdered my great 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 grandparents, (laughs) and then uh, you know you can you know if I wasn't blind, I could get wound up with wanting to butcher your family here and now. I mean, with that that highly uh, influenced my prejudices, ethnic identities, cultural biases. So, and this is why it is important that you find the cause of suffering in yourself, because not many, not there's not that many humans that can do that. Uh, just like this, this uh, peace conference with, between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, you know, they're just so tender hooks. And there, somebody was telling me uh, they were in Jerusalem, and they had. A, they were um, they were in the Palestinian part of Jerusalem, where the Palestinian I- Israelis live, and they were describing that as you know they don't have kind of fancy shopping centers and whatnot, but they have little shops, and they had kind of things like shops selling T-shirts. So this this man went to look at the T-shirts, and he saw one with. Uh, all these people in this kind of extreme sense of laughing you know like bending over belly laughs you know and then on the on the on the back of the t-shirt it said uh the peace what is it peace in israel and palestine <laughs> something like <that. laughs> and this is you know cuz this is uh, there's so many attempts to re- you know, it's it's always a kind of negotiating and and uh, and testing each other out with total mistrust or no moral commitment to nonviolence. You know, from either side. You know, so it's it's like you know, there's no sense of of even the first precept of respecting the right of a human individual to live. And so it's like you know you you bomb my side and then i bomb your side and and so it goes on into revenge and and uh and it and it just goes on and on and on till it finally maybe it's suppressed for a while but it'll it'll rise again because the actual causes are never being addressed it's just maybe they burn out or wear each other out a bit until uh the next time so that's why you know the with the now with the uh, radical uh islam you know this uh, al qaeda and and these kind of taliban things now, i don't know very much about these things but but these are now the focus of the western world you know see you know labeling them as the enemy and then than the way we can go around trying to kill them because they're the enemy, you know, this is like we're not even respecting the first precept, and and we think we have to get rid of these uh, these extremists, but but through violent means, and of course you can't attain a peaceful you can't attain a peaceful end if you use violent means, you know. So there's there's a sense of the the end. End justifies the means. So, if we use violence, it's to get rid of these disruptive people to have peace. But that's not the law of karma. It's not the way things actually are. To have peace, you've got to, you you know you use peaceful means. The the end, the means and the end are really the same thing. To have peace, you've got to use you have to use peaceful means. You can't have peace through violent means. And this is like in, this is the, what we call the law of karma. You know, you have, if you, the the means, then if you want a peaceful end, then you use peaceful means. If you, you know, want to, uh, you, if you want a, a apple tree, you don't plant pear seeds. You know, you've got to, use the right <laughs> means to get the result that you, you you hope, you long for. And I think this is, like Mahatma Gandhi was emphasizing this in India in the 30s and 40s, you know, where he was emphasizing this, uh, trying to, to direct the moving, move towards independence from the British using peaceful means rather than violent ones. And there were a lot of in, in India at that time, there were a lot of radical uh, Indians wanting to go and sh- kill off the British and, you know, terrorize them and force them to leave through violent means. And then Gandhi, who was a very kind of exceptional kind of being, <laughs> managed to hold them as best he could from, uh, from taking violent action against the British. And uh, because he knew the law of karma... You know you might you might kill off a lot of British, but you're not you're not going to get a peaceful result from that. You're just creating more problems and 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 when and when the British did leave, then it was this partition you know where, where and the, and of course that was the uh, heartbreaking to see people you know, Muslims and Hindus just, just killing each other in mass. Uh, through these uh, forced movements of partition so so that the whole thing you know that Gandhi was pointing to the law of karma, and then in you know in in Buddhist monasticism, this is also you know we we find we can't get a uh, the end if we don't, if we use the wrong means, so like in the uh, in uh, monastic monastic practice, we have these vinaya and so forth which we're using peaceful means always to practice awareness not to just kill our bad thoughts or or uh, you know annihilate the enemy but to you know to develop this sense of of restraint and watching and observing in which we we see things in perspective so even the bad thoughts you know or uh bad thoughts are seen in terms of they are what they are, we're not we're not trying to kill them we're just recognizing them and then they cease on their own without me having to as if I try to suppress bad thoughts then I create a karmic connection of suppression of negativity <coughs> which has its own karmic result which is not peaceful so the, the whole aim of, of our life is to is to, you know, take responsibility for action and speech, but then we're not, then we, you know, the advice is to do good, refrain from doing bad things. So that's, you know, our intention is toward skillful action rather than unskillful action. But in terms of what you're actually feeling, isn't always going to be skillful or unskillful. And so you But your awareness of them, you know, your awareness allows you to respond or not respond. So, like, if uh, if I have you know a nasty feeling about somebody wanting to harm them, I can be aware of that, and then I don't act on it, and it ceases. It goes in its own way. You know, it's impermanent. And then if I have a feeling of wanting to help somebody that's in need of, you know, some compassionate feeling and wanting to help somebody, I'm aware of that. But I don't attach to it, but I can act on it if I can. I can, you know, if I have a way of helping that person, I'm quite willing to do that, you know, to, to act in a skillful way towards them. And so this is where we, we have perspective on both the good and evil conditions you know good and bad heaven and hell in our own minds where we're not taking sides anymore but in terms of how we live our lives on this planet in this society is towards doing the good things using our physical forms our speech toward skillful action and refraining from unskillful actions or unskillful speech and then from there we can uh, you know, uh, see the result is that, uh, you know, being a monk, this is my 44th year as a bhikkhu. I've had a long time to practice, to test this stuff out. And uh, I think back now, 44 years, you know, all the, I'm so grateful for all the things I've never done or said. <laughs> because I'm a monk <laughs> that I probably would have done. <laughs> If I wasn't <laughs> No, I think anyway gratitude for all the things I've never done. You know, unskillful actions I might have done if I if I didn't have such a commitment to this uh, to this form. And it's got a very protective form. And all the the things I've never said that I would have said if I was <laughs> So I think I'm let a go. <laughs> <laughs>